Can you believe the day goes by so quickly <laughs> when you're having fun? And uh, we have fun when we do this because we enjoy it. And it reminds us, it reminds us all the time that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, as Alan was speaking to you, I was thinking as he was talking about the sodium potassium pumps and, and how the muscles work and the nerves work and how his brain is controlling his tongue and his mouth and his lips and he's jumping around and he's, he's, he's quite animated, isn't he? Yeah. Oh yeah, I tell you. Oh, he's visual, he's animated and he's, he's quite a wonderful fellow most of the time. <laughs> and then when he sleeps, he's quite ordinary. <laughs> but when you see all that happening and coordinated, and I didn't see any power plug coming out of his whatever. It's not plugged into the wall. It's all independent. Isn't that amazing? Independent to a point. But there is life. There are all these mysteries that are in, you know, and they are being unraveled bit by bit, but there is so much yet to know. For a bone marrow cell, to be injected into the vein, you harvest it from a donor, you take it out of their bone marrow and you put it into a solution, inject it into the vein, and lo and behold, it goes into the bone marrow. It settles down and produces blood cells. Go figure. And so we're going to talk about cells with special functions. You saw the beauty and the amazing wonder of the cell. And I was thinking as you were talking, this is all what we call submicroscopic. How many of you had microscopes as kids? Did anybody have a microscope? Yeah, and you go and kill a fly and you put it underneath and you, you take a drop of, of water out of a pond and you look and you see all the bacteria and you see these wonderful things. But now, exactly, and they're swimming around and you... You look at them, and, and I remember, actually, my dad even pricked himself, and I was able to look at blood when I was about nine or ten, and I was fascinated. And all of these special f things that you see today, which are shown on what we call electron microscopes, you can't see these things under an ordinary microscope. Now, you think of how many billions of cells, trillions of cells, there are in the body more than the national debt. Mercy in one body. But you can't even see them. And they're busy functioning all the time. And you're not thinking while you're sitting here, how many of you have thought to yourselves, oh dear, I need to breathe. And I've got to get my heart to pump, 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 pump. And then, oh dear, I better breathe again. There'd be a lot of corpses around here, wouldn't there? We don't have to remember to do it. There's a special mechanism which we'll talk about in the special functions of nerve, muscle, endocrine, and blood, and all these specialized cells which keep everything going. You go to sleep tonight, your heart will keep on beating, hopefully. You'll keep on breathing. Some of you will even snore. You don't snore? Nor do I. <laughs> 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 
And then tomorrow morning you'll wake up because there'll be special changes in your hormone systems which belong to this system called the endocrine system. So the body is beautifully and wonderfully designed, created, and that's the reason that we have a stewardship responsibility. It's entrusted to you. You know, you can take your motor car. Some of them are expensive. I saw somebody put an advertisement in one of our little papers at the general conference, wanted reliable, good, used car in wonderful condition for $1,500. I said, you're an optimist. But you know, you can take a motor car and you can get one for $1,500 and it'll work and when it stops you can throw it away and you can go and get another one. But your body, you get one chance. Sometimes you can get a heart transplant, a liver transplant, a bone transplant. They tell me that you can get a hair transplant and I'm a little scared of that. But anyway, you get one chance. On completing this chapter, you should know that cells communicate with each other. Did you think about it that as Dr. Handysides was talking about the, the cell itself, those cells, some of them are di differentiated into nerve, some into muscle, some into bowel, blood, but the various cells communicate with each other. Understand that nerve and muscle, you know, don't worry about them. They're a bunch of kids next door with Kathleen. It's Youth Alive. Yeah, other, you know who they are? They're our colleagues. Oh, we know that. We live with her. So don't worry about them. The other specialized cells are working, their voice cells. But you know what else? They've got nerve and muscle tissue which is excitable. When a tissue is excitable, it means it can be activated. All right? So it's, some of you don't look very excitable to me right now. You look excitable, but not excited. <laughs> <laughs> He's really very cheeky sometimes. And then you should know the basic functions of the cell types that constitute blood. Blood has various types of cells. We'll just go through them briefly and uh, look at those special systems. The body is made up of various organ systems. Can you name me an organ system? Anybody? The blood is an organ. The hematology system, right. Skin is an organ, absolutely. The? Assimilation, absorption. The gastrointestinal, right? Digestive, assimilation, digestive system. Immune system. Lymphatics, yes. Nervous system. You guys are getting closer to the most important system of all. The reproductive system. <laughs> he thought I was going to say cardiovascular. I knew. You see, he's a gynecologist, obstetrician, pediatrician, and I'm a cardiologist. And so we have a discussion sometimes as which is the most important. But we, he always tells me without the uterus and the ovary, there would be no hearts. <laughs> so there are all these wonderful systems. The nervous system, you can see, you can hear, balance, talk, think. The heart, which pumps at 72 beats a minute regularly from about what? Six weeks of life.
six weeks after those cells that were formed, the heart forms at six weeks and begins to pump away until the day you die. Amazing. And all of these are coordinated by a conductor. It's like a great orchestra. And the, the um, nervous system is the great conductor of this orchestra. And sometimes the conductor doesn't work so well, you know, especially when people talk too much. You know, he's not keeping them quiet. But the nervous system is conducting the movement, the balance, the thought processes, the coordination. Now, I want you to all quickly do me one quick favor. Turn and look to the back. Okay, interesting. When you turn to look to the back, none of you, many of you turned the top of your torso as well, but most people turn their necks. Now, in order to turn your neck, simple thing. Parts of the muscles must contract, so I'm going to turn my neck this way. These muscles must contract. What must happen to the muscles here? They must relax. Did you think about it? You just did it. The nervous system coordinated it beautifully. There was a contraction, a relaxation, and you know what? Attendance register. We don't have one. If she gives us a piece of paper, we'll get one. We'll get one if she gives us a... Thank you. Exactly, and you did it right away. You interpreted, you understood, it went in, and it was, it was instantaneous. But there was this amazing balance of this coordination and various components. The cells which make up the system communicate with other cells and with the systems in general. Now we're going to look at some of the interesting ways these cells communicate with each other. They often use chemical messengers. Okay, he caught that. That was a communication. A cell can communicate with a cell close by, or if we have two cells next to each other, we can communicate, as you can see, like this. <laughs> I'm gentle with my elders. <laughs> And then we can talk at a distance, speak to someone at the back of the room. So they can communicate via chemical messengers, send a message. You know, we write letters. Cells send a chemical message. And they do it in the form of various chemical substances. And um, they also do it electrically. Now, the chemical messengers may act on cells which are right next to them, like we were there, or they may act on cells which are far away from them. The way that that works, to influence a cell which is far away from you, you would then, the cell, if you were the cell, you would produce a chemical substance which then goes into the bloodstream. Now here's the other amazing thing. When that chemical goes into the bloodstream, it goes along until it finds a receptor. Now, what is a receptor? A receptor is like a keyhole. Now, when you go to your rooms this evening, you've got a little card, haven't you? Hopefully, you've got a card. Somewhere, I've got a card. And you put it in the 
the, the lock, which is the receptor, and a little green light comes on, doesn't it? And the door opens. And that's exactly what happens, I mean, similar to that, with a chemical messenger. It comes along and it finds the right keyhole, and the cell responds and lets it in. And then it acts on that cell to produce either other responses, maybe it produces another hormone, or another chemical, or it elevates the energy production. Now, for example, right here, you have a special gland. You can't really feel it. If you can, it's a problem. It's called the thyroid gland. So right here, it's the shield gland which sits right in front of your neck, just below the voice box and around the voice box. Now, it produces thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is very important in keeping the metabolic regulation of the body right so that you stay warm enough and that your energy level is right and, and uh, the heat regulation is correct. How does it do that? It produces a chemical which goes into the blood, which then finds the receptor, acts on the cells. Isn't this amazing? It's absolutely amazing and wonderful. Well, the question is, why doesn't it produce too much? We're going to talk about that in the endocrine overview, but there's a special mechanism which monitors all the time, just like there's a thermostat somewhere in this building, which monitors the temperature of a room. When the temperature goes too high, the air conditioner comes on. When the ideal temperature is reached, there's a feedback which then switches off the air conditioner and the temperature remains constant. Now, in the brain, there's a, there are special cells which measure how much thyroid hormone are circulating in the blood, is circulating in the blood. When there's enough, it switches off the production of thyroid hormone. Isn't it wonderful? And that's how blood sugar is controlled and measured by cells in the pancreas. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Three general types of communication between the cells. Here it's quite um, simply put, see me, defend me, repair me, cleanse me, regulate me, feed me. This is what, this is what happens around about lunchtime in this room, feed me, okay? Now the communication between the cells can be via the nervous system or what we call neural communication. Now the nerves communicate with each other and they connect with each other by a system called synapses. A synapse is where a portion of the nerve joins another nerve. And where those two communicate, there is a structure called a synapse or a junction or a joining. Now, this nerve and this portion of the nerve communicate with each other by a chemical. A chemical is released once a, an impulse comes along, this nerve comes along to here, will cause a chemical to be released. The chemical is released into the cleft, into the gap between that and the next nerve. The chemical goes along and it excites the next cell. 
Now, interestingly, once that has happened, the chemical is then repackaged and stored away to be used again. So that when the next impulse comes along, the chemical's available to go into the keyhole, open the slot, cause the excitement, and then it gets packaged again. If it doesn't get packaged again, you get what's called tetanus. Now what also is amazing that allows us to do repetitive function. I mean, you can do that repetitively. And all the time it is busy repackaging the chemical and recycling it all the time. It's amazing how it works. There are some diseases where there is destruction at these areas and individuals get very tired and very weak and are unable to move. It's called myasthenia gravis because they cannot maintain the special function of nerve conduction with the muscles. <coughs> and so we see that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The messenger acts onto the next door cell and the term we used for the cell next door is an adjacent cell, the next door cell. So, cells speak to each other either by contact right next to each other, we call that um, direct communication or paracrine, then they can communicate with each other by a chemical messenger through the bloodstream, we call that endocrine, that's how hormones work, insulin, thyroid, the sex hormones, and so on. And then it can work through a neural messenger. And the neural messenger is a neurotransmitter working between two cells or a nerve cell and a nerve and a muscle cell. Is that clear? So you've got some basic ways that cells, as it were, talk to each other. And just as I watch your facial expressions, you know, there's a result of communication. So the cell responds. When it gets a message from another cell, it responds. Sorry. No, I was pressing the wrong button. <laughs> so communication between cells, we've talked about endocrine communication, where the hormone or a growth factor, you know, things have changed. Good evening, Mrs. Handyside. <laughs> um, when we talk about endocrine, as we said, the hormone or the messenger is produced in one portion, popped into the blood, and that is carried to the cell where it's going to work. The hormone is produced in specialized cells, like we mentioned about thyroid hormone, and has a, its effect on, hormones, on, on cells which are very distant. So here you see a secreting cell into the bloodstream. There's the target cell. Here's the key and lock and key mechanism, as it were. You understand that? Clear? Good. Then between the cells, neighboring cells, we talk about that as paracrine. What was the other kind called? Endocrine. And this is called para, meaning parallel, next to. And the cell is released, the, uh, the communicating messenger is locally released. You know, like naughty little boys sitting in a classroom and the one does this, the other does that. And so it moves along. That's how cells communicate as well. And it's released by the cell locally and makes an impact on that cell. Then 
Cells communicate with themselves. They regulate. Within a cell, you find that there's a substance in the cell which may modify its own responses. For example, adrenaline or noradrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, produced within a cell, affect the cell functions itself. Now we find that those hormones are the ones that are responsible, for example, the one I've just mentioned, for the fright, fight, and flight. So not only does it prepare cells that are at a distance, but the cell itself is prepared and modified by the adrenaline that it produces. Now what are chemical messengers made of? They're made of various substances. Amines, amino acids, steroids, you've all heard of steroids, polypeptides, polypeptides are groups of amino acids, and lipids. What are lipids? Fats. Fats. Lipids are fats. Okay? So you've got various, and remember this because later in our course, you're going to hear about various food groups. Fats, carbohydrates, proteins, and so on. And um, important to know that those foods are broken down to become the building blocks for the various substances in the body. Now that's another amazing thing, that the body is able to take in food, break it down into its constituents, and then use those building blocks to make these very special neural transmitters. Now nerve cells have very special functions. They transmit nerve impulses. Now I want you to think about um, a lemon. A lemon. A lemon. And I want you to think that we've just cut a lemon in half. And now what we're going to do, we're going to take that lemon and we're going to, first of all, smell it. And then we are going to bite into it. Do you find any responses happening to your salivary flow? Okay. There are responses which take place. Nerve cells have special functions of transmitting and integrating. So not only do they send a message, they integrate the messages so that the body functions together. Remember when you turned your head, there was an integration which took place. Muscles relaxed, muscles contracted, so there was an integration, a conducting of this function so that it was smooth, painless, and effective. Nerve impulses were used there. And the nerve has a cell body and branches and also a long axon. And here are pictures of uh, microscopic pictures of what nerve cells look like. This is what the nerve body looks like with a nucleus. And these are the uh, nerve cells and the dendrites as they communicate with one another. And the axons, which is the long nerve, the long conducting portion of the cell, uh, each end with um, dendrites. Now dendrites mean looking like a tree. The Greek for a tree is dendron. And so when you look at these, they look actually like the tops of trees, don't they? With lots of branches. And each one communicates with another nerve ending and they have those nerve gaps with the chemicals which go between them. And they have what are called 
terminal buttons which contain stores of the chemical messengers we talked about. And they connect with other nerves or muscles. So there's always a connection, one nerve to the next or a nerve to a muscle. And what is the name of the connection between two nerves? It's called a synapse. Very good. Axons are of two kinds. Now, you can think of um, the wire going from the electric outlet to here as an axon. And the axon can be, it's the conducting portion, and it can either be myelinated, which is insulated, or not. When, it's myel when those without myelin are called unmyelinated, simple and straightforward. Those that have myelin are called myelinated, and they are uh, called this because there is a Schwann cell, a special cell, which surrounds the axon or the long nerve cell and produces a, uh, a special type of, um, it's a phospholipid, and that cell encourages and increases the speed of transmission of the nerve impulse along the nerve. So if you have a simple, unmyelinated nerve cell, the impulse will go slowly, portion by portion by portion, along the nerve. When you've got a myelinated nerve cell, you have what we call nodes of Ranvier. And what happens then is the impulse jumps from one node to the next one. So instead of being a slow movement like this, it's a and you see how much more quickly it's going to get going than the slow walk. It jumps across and moves a lot more quickly. So when a myelinated nerve is present, it conducts far more quickly. Now the interesting thing, as you noticed, nerve didn't function quickly enough. What I wanted you to see is that our reflexes are very fast. You know, they are. And the immediately, not that was he relying on unmyelinated, but myelinated because it was a quick response. Now, if you think when you're walking along and the wind blows a piece of dust and you see it coming to your eye, before you've thought about it, what happens? You've blinked. That's the, the fastest nerve conduction that is known is the eyelid of a cat. That's the fastest conducting nerve that we know of. You had a question. Schwann. Schwann. It's named after the man who discovered the Mr. Cell. No, no, Mr. Schwann. Okay, this is the nerve cell here. This is an axon. These are the dendrites. The next picture, the next slide has a picture, I think, of a... It doesn't. Sorry. Alan's going to draw one for you. That's the nerve itself. Now, this is cutting the nerve in across. Yeah. You're cutting it across like that. Okay? So looking down there, we have the nerve in the center and the Schwann cell wrapped around it. When we look at the nerve, we would see it was insulated. And the impulse. Running through it. Running full length through it, coming down to here. It's like the wire. And the, these are the nodes of Ronvier, 
for the nerve. Yeah. So instead of moving along at a slow pace like that, it jumps along. And saltatory means it dances along. And so it's much quicker. So the Schwann cell is the cell, that pancake which wraps around the, the axon. And you can compare it to the insulation around wire, for example. Just, just to understand the concept. But what it does is it helps that impulse to be conducted so much more quickly. Okay? Nerve cells are very easily stimulated and excited, and they work through chemical, electrical, and mechanical means. Now, you can understand how the mechanical works the longer you sit in a lecture. Because the longer you sit in a lecture, there's a mechanical understanding that you've been sitting a long time, or in an airplane. I did a flight recently that was 19 hours long, with a one-hour stop, and you weren't allowed to get off the airplane. And I want to tell you, I, um, I felt it. That seat was so uncomfortable, and so was mine. And that's a mechanical. <laughs> it is, isn't, isn't it wonderful? And that's mechanical. And the, the pressure you feel on the bottom of your feet, on your backside as you are sitting, those are all mechanical means of transmission. Electrical ones, we find that's how the nerve impulses are, are propagated uh, to elicit muscle movement. Chemical, you just had a chemical stimulation when I talked to you about the lemon. That was thought, but when you eat a lemon or you peel an onion, there are chemicals would elicit a certain response. So th there are various stimuli that are responded to. We don't really have time to go into all the physiology. In fact, we don't even have time to even skim the surface. What you need to understand, when Dr. Handyside was talking about the um, sodium-potassium pump, in every cell, inside the cell, is predominantly a negative charge. Okay? Negative. Outside of the cell, is predominantly a positive charge. The ions or the chemicals inside a cell are mainly potassium, which is positive or negative? negative. Positive, K plus. And outside is mainly sodium, which is positive or negative? Positive. So where does the negative charge come from? Chlorine is one, and the other one is the, is the proteins, which are negatively charged. So you've got inside the cell, you've got the potassium and a lot of negatively charged proteins, and some chloride, which gives you a gradient. What is a gradient? A gradient is a difference between two levels. When you walk up a hill, you have the bottom of the hill, you have the top of the hill. Between the two, it measures the gradient. It can be a low gradient, it can be a steep gradient. And the gradient between the outside of a cell and the inside of a cell is normally minus 70 millivolts. Along comes a nerve impulse, and it stimulates a sudden change to take place. Suddenly, with a sodium-potassium pump,
has been keeping the potassium inside the cell, it allows the, the potassium to go out of the cell and the sodium to come into the cell. And you get this exchange of ions, and so contraction can take place if it's a muscle, along with calcium changes which take place, or in a nerve, and we're talking about an action potential moving along this excitable tissue, there's a continuous change of electrical charge which continues all the way down the nerve cell. It, well, it's happened as fast as I've talked. I mean, it's just like that. The, the blink of an eye. It's nanoseconds. It's milliseconds. It's small amounts of time. All happens very quickly. And at the same time, what happens, once the impulse has charged along the nerve, it gets ready to receive the next impulse. So it goes through what we call a depolarization. Once it's depolarized, the chemicals are reversed back to the normal charge. That's called repolarization. And it's ready within milliseconds for the next impulse to come along. And you think of just walking along the corridor or walking upstairs. How often do you, unless you're my age where you've got very focals, that you look at the floor like this? Generally, you walk along and you don't look at the floor. Because all the time, your cerebellum, your nervous system, but particularly that related to balance, is measuring. And it's measured already. And it knows how the next step is going to be. And you know, as you look ahead of you, you become aware of a little bit of unevenness in the ground, and your cerebellum adjusts for it. It's amazing. So these action potentials, the nerve impulses, and as they move along the excitable tissue, the responses constitute what we call the language of the nervous system. But you know, language is inadequate to describe how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. We've talked about the synapse, we've talked about the impulses. Then there's muscle tissue. Muscle tissue, sorry, do you have a question? Thought? Muscle tissue is also an excitable tissue. It functions again in relationship to the movement of ions, sodium, potassium, but very importantly also, calcium. Calcium is an important component of muscle uh, function, and they have not only uh, an action potential along their nerve membranes, but they have contractile elements. Now, you think about it. I want you to do this. Pretend that you're an Arnold Schwarzenegger 30 years ago. Okay? <laughs> Pumped up and showing your muscles. There are what we call contractile elements. Contract means it can shorten. But remember, not only can it shorten, it relaxes. Can you imagine if you shorten your muscles, I'm going to rub my nose, and now I can't loosen. It's like Velcro. There's a very special system within the muscle contractile elements. They hook onto each other like Velcro. And once the, the function is completed, it unhooks and slides back to normal. Isn't that amazing? And there are different proteins called actin and myosin. 
which is the two main contractile proteins. There are fat cells that tend to store calories. And here's an important component when we talk about insulin resistance. People don't, you know, always think of fat being just around the belly. Well, fat gets right into the muscles. And this is an important area where they exercise or they cause insulin resistance and in the tissue of the liver. We'll talk a little bit later when we talk about diabetes, about insulin resistance, and it's the fat cells in these territories which are particularly culpable for the problems of diabetes. There are three main types of muscle. There's the voluntary muscle, right, scratch your ear, pick your nose, you shouldn't do that, otherwise you'll end up with a finger like this. Um, and then there's the involuntary muscle. So voluntary muscle is when you say, I'm going to turn my head, I'm going to write with my hand, pick up a, a remote, switch off the computer, whatever it may be. That's voluntary. That's under your control. These are these big muscles, and we call them striated or voluntary muscles, the muscles of the back, the muscles of the legs, and so on. Then you get the involuntary muscles. The involuntary muscles are the smooth muscles which normally form part of the gastrointestinal tract. When you... <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, but... <laughs> oh, that <laughs> He's making the sounds of the tummy. You know, you're about in a prayer circle, and then somebody's tummy starts to growl. That's the involuntary muscles working. You know the sound, the, the, the sounds that he makes so well. It knows just when you're going to pray. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. From the timing point of view, uh, that gives us regularity, bowel functions, uh, regular meals, and you know I'll never forget. Re I think it was in one of the. Um, I remember Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories, but there was the story of the little girl who uh, was always filling her stomach. And the parallel of the machine which said, you know, why don't you ever give me a break? Fill me, let me do my work, and have a rest until the next meal. You know, regularity of eating, regularity of sleeping, but our regularity of function, you're absolutely right, the involuntary muscles begin to work on a rhythmic basis. And our sleep patterns are on a rhythmic basis. Our, uh, our bodies work on what's called a circadian rhythm. So all of the body has a, a significant rhythmic function. And uh, Elder Findlay preached about chronobiology. And I had a lot of fun with him yesterday at breakfast because he was telling me about it. And uh, I said to him, so tell me, where are these papers? He says, these are really good papers. I said, and tell me more. He says, I've told you everything I know. <laughs> but it is an amazing and wonderful field, and I think that we don't appreciate the value of the Sabbath as we ought. So there's the voluntary, the skeletal muscle. Then there's the cardiac muscle. Cardiac muscle is very similar to the voluntary muscle, but it contracts rhythmically. And if you take a heart, and we used to we did this when we were in our second year, we did it in frogs. You take a frog's heart, 
it was quite a painful thing for us because we didn't enjoy killing this poor little thing. And then you take the heart out and you isolate the heart in, a, in ringer's lactate. And then you would, we would dissect it and take it portion by portion apart. And each portion would contract on its own separately. Now, heart muscle has the ability, the intrinsic ability, to rhythmically contract and relax. Contract and relax. And whereas the muscles that are the voluntary muscles are usually in a... Um, form of a, a single fiber, you have, and you can see how it works here, in the heart, it's what we call a syncytium. I don't have a picture of it. But it means that it's a whole group of cells together. Do you want to draw? A red one. And these cells fit together as opposed to being in a tube. They fit together in a group, and the contractility of them their intrinsic ability to rhythmically contract ensures that the heart functions as a contractile pump regularly all the time. So it's a very specialized cell, a specialized muscle. What you find in the heart, for example, is that the various portions of the heart, if you were to take the, the muscles and put them in in uh, isolates of cells, the uh, portion that stimulates contraction called the sinoatrial node will contract along at about 72 beats a minute. Then you'll get the syncytial cardiac muscle of the top chambers, and they'll contract along at about 60 beats a minute. Then you take the big muscle of the ventricles, and you isolate those cells, and they will have an intrinsic contractile rate of about 40 beats a minute. So here you see in the striated muscle or the voluntary muscle, the cell is a spindle type cell and it's a single long cell and a number of them grouped together in a bunch to, call the, to form the striated muscle or the voluntary muscle. In a syncytial system, you can see that they don't they're not single cells, they tend to merge into each other and branch into each other. And instead of having a very defined beginning and a defined end, they tend to interdigitate, we call. Each of the cells tends to fit in like a jigsaw puzzle. And because of that, they are much more able to do the regular contraction uh, process. Now, interestingly, we see this in patients. Uh, it's quite an amazing thing. You have a patient come in and they say, Doctor, I'm dizzy, I'm lightheaded, I feel I want to fall over when I get up. And you take their pulse rate and their pulse is going at 40 beats a minute. And these are people, 38 beats a minute, they have what we call a complete heart block. You put in the pacemaker, their heart functions at 72 beats a minute, they wake up, they think properly, their minds are clear. And so you see that the intrinsic function of the heart muscle is an amazingly designed feature to ensure that life is maintained by propelling blood throughout the body on a regular basis, 72 beats a minute normally, can go up to 150 under exercise and back down to about 70, 60 when you're sleeping. So the muscle contracts rhythmically in a group 
because of the pacemaker cells that discharge at specific rates. So I mentioned to you, the upper chambers will discharge at about 62 to 70 beats a minute. The lower chambers, if you isolate them, at about 40 beats a minute. All because of the special characteristics. The smooth muscle, we were talking about the involuntary, so we talked about striated or voluntary. We talked about cardiac, then involuntary, which includes the gastrointestinal tract. Things also organs such as the bladder. Now you can understand how that smooth muscle functions. When you've been drinking a lot of water, as we've encouraged you to do, when it comes to the end of the lecture, you have a discomfort, don't you? It's sending you a signal. It accommodates to a point. And then it sends you a message, gotta go. And if you ignore it too long, it says you really gotta go. You know the story. So uh, they also have a certain amount of pacemakers, but not as, as uh, precise and as regular as we find in the heart. Blood is an amazing system, an organ. There are a number of different types of cells. Dr. Handyside showed you the red blood cells, which start out with a nucleus, and just before they are extruded into the blood, they lose their nucleus. And they are what we call biconcave, which is a, a beautiful illustration. That's what we call biconcave. You see, there's a, it narrows towards the middle, and this is where the nucleus would have been. And it's now gone. And one of the very important reasons that it has this structure is so that it can get around the very little tight angles of the tiniest, tiniest blood vessels. Have you ever thought about it? How these cells get through and move from the heart all the way around to the tips of your fingers, do the hairpin bends, okay? Right around those hairpin bends, and they actually, if you watch them under a microscope while they're flowing, they deform. And because of their biconcavity, this is the most, firstly, the, as, as you mentioned, for the carriage of oxygen, this is the most um, efficient and advantageous structure, but also they're able to deform in such a way that they can easily get through the blood vessels. Now, in sickle cell anemia, they can't. And when the oxygen tensions drop and under, under sickling crises, they then get stuck in those small blood vessels and can cause significant amount of damage to bone, to organs, and they tremendous pain and can cause fatality and death. So the blood is made of watery plasma. It has different kinds of cells. It's got the, the albumin in it. It's also got protein in it, other protein, and antibodies, which are very important for what? What are your antibodies for? Fighting diseases. And now, interestingly, have you ever thought of why the antibodies are in the blood? Because the blood goes to every organ of the body. So don't you think it's a brilliant idea to put your defense mechanism right in the tissue which goes everywhere? And that's why blood contains the antibodies which actively defend the body against um, infections. You can look at this, it's a reservoir of fluid and helps maintain blood pressure. People whose um, 
plasma levels drop or the fluid in, in the intravascular component drop. They have low blood pressure, they feel dizzy. And interestingly, I read an article just the day before yesterday, or yesterday, which talked about the fact that mild dehydration, our friend Dr. Kathleen Kunteroff is a boffin on drinking lots and lots of water, and we tease her a little bit about it. But I saw a paper which showed that even mild dehydration can present with cognitive dysfunction or, or mental symptoms. And I'm hesitant to show that because you can say, I told you so. But we need to drink adequate amounts of fluid, so go for it. The bone marrow, we talked a little bit about bone marrow. Bone marrow is a, a specialized structure in the bone which produces different kinds of blood cells. It's an amazing factory producing red cells, white cells, uh, for the fun and platelets in the bone marrow. It's one of the most active and one of the largest organs in the body and produces all these wonderful cells which keep us functioning. This is a picture from an electron microscope of these red cells. Can you see the dent in the middle of the cell? This is a cell, a red cell, another red cell behind it, next to it, and here's one of the white cells. You can see it's a completely different configuration. But these cells, and as you look at it, you get the impression that it's re readily able to be folded and to be deformed so that it can travel through the various places it needs to go to. The white cells are important in the production of antibodies, uh, which are protective against infections. They're also important because they actually engulf. Certain of the white cells are able to surround the enemy, the bacteria, kill it, and dispose of it. It's amazing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. The red blood cells, another picture in color showing you the form of the cells. I think our time is basically up. I'm going to mention to you one last thing before we close. There's another cell component in the blood which is very important that keeps you from bleeding. Have you thought about it? We've all cut ourselves at some point or another. And you know, when I used to shave with an ordinary razor, I used to cut myself from time to time. Now the interesting thing, you cut yourself and what happens? You bleed a little bit, and then what happens? It coagulates. And that's because you've got little cells called platelets. Inside the blood are Actually, they are not cells themselves. They are portions of cells. They are fragments of cells. And what they do, the minute there's a break in the blood vessel, they come together. And then there is a coming together of protein called fibrinogen, which causes a net. It traps more of the platelets together, causes a plug, stops the blood from flowing out, Actually, not only does it cause a plug, but it contracts, so it brings the portions of the broken blood vessel together. Now, here's a miracle for you to think about. When it's clotting the blood at the point of the cut or the gash or the incision, why doesn't the rest of the blood all clot up as well? Have you ever thought about that? It is. 
it's partly that. It's partly the communication through various cell chemicals. But there are also very special substances in the blood which prevent clotting at all times. So sometimes we produce little clots in our blood vessel, in our, in our blood system, but the body has a system called thrombolytics, which break down those clots. But at the point where there's been a rupture or a cut or a small hemorrhage, it's a very local and focal change which takes place, prevents us from bleeding. Ultimately, a scar forms within seven to 10 days to 14 days. The scab is gone. The healing is taking place. And within about 21 days to six weeks, the skin returns to about 75% of its normal strength that it had before the cut. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Enjoy your evening. I don't know if there are any questions, if you take some time for some questions at this point. But remember that there are various specialized organ systems, specialized cells, cells which communicate with each other, nerve cells, muscle cells, um, the blood cells, the various organ systems, all of which are coordinated into the function of an amazing, wonderfully made body. Eric. Chronobiology. Yes. I suppose you could. And I think that one of the things which is important when you look at shift workers, there's no question that people who work shifts have increased cardiovascular diseases, they have increased central nervous and emotional health problems, and especially if the shifts are changing all the time. People who work constantly uh, a night shift and they keep on at that same setting all the time tend to adjust. But we all of us have what's called the circadian rhythm, and we need to be in a, a rhythm of sleep and wakefulness, and we do need regularity. So that was established a number of years ago when hormones like cortisol were established, and they realized that and showed that there's an elevation just before waking in the morning. It rises, and you find that the majority, for example, of heart attacks occur at about 9 o'clock in the morning. When the cortisol rise is going up and the blood pressure is rising and getting ready for the day and the business of the day, and then you find that it begins to drop again and then rise again towards evening and then fall as you go to sleep. So you get this biphasic, what we call circadian rhythm, and as one sleeps, it drops down again. About three, four, five o'clock in the morning starts rising to get ready for the day to come. So our bodies work on and our melatonin system produced by the pineal gland, uh, the wakefulness, the sleepiness, all of those systems function very beautifully together to maintain a rhythm. And chronobiology has a lot to do with that. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org